Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Welcome to another show. I'm very excited to have Eng Tang with us today. He's the founder of Tozy Capital. He recently left his high paying job at Apple as a data scientist, and he's uh, now running his real estate investment company. He has 12 years experience in real estate investing, and in the past year, he's done $50 million in deals. He was born in a refugee camp in Thailand, went to Wharton, did the Peace Corps, and now has found financial freedom at 35 through real estate investing. Excited to dive in without further ado. Uh, Ang, how are you? Good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for jumping on. So there's a lot to, to kind of dive into there. Um, what was your, just kind of by, as an introduction here, what was your first introduction to real estate investing? Was it a mentor or a book or what was, what was kind of your on-ramp to start to getting into this world 12 years ago? It was my dad. He bought a three unit in a pretty rough area of town. That was all we could afford at the time. We were still renting an apartment. We never bought a house ourselves. Um, which is actually very similar to how I got started. I actually bought three apartment buildings before I bought my own house to live in. That was always renting. Uh, so that was my first foray into it. I saw how he did it. I saw the value he created and how it was still work, but you know, work that generated um, income on a very predictable basis. That's excellent. And what market was that in when you were first buying your first? Uh, your that was in Los Angeles. Los so Angeles. Not a not the best market to invest in now, but decent back then. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you for, for that. I, I want to kind of dial it back a little bit further and learn about your journey. Um, you know, the, there's kind of this immigrant mentality that I talk about. It, it's kind of in, inevitable as you study people that have, have become f- successful. And um, it's kind of this idea of just seeing opportunity and seizing it. And I, I'm extremely inspired by that. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of take us back a little bit on, on your journey here, uh, coming to the States and, and um, you know, up to the point when you, when you started uh, getting into real estate. But I, I would love to learn a little bit more about your journey. Yeah, I'm happy to share the story. Uh, it's a journey that is probably emblematic for a lot of refugees and immigrants and for Parts of my journey, it's really my parents' story. Um, I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand. Um, my parents are Cambodian Chinese, and that ethnic group in Cambodia was persecuted at the time. Uh, the classical definition is a genocide, where half of the Cambodian Chinese uh, population were you know, eliminated at that time through the Pol Pot regime, Khmer Rouge. Uh, it was a tough time for sure, uh, but I was one year old, one year old when I, um, one and a half when I left. So it's not something I remember very deeply, although I do have some great pictures of me chasing chickens and in straw huts. So it's uh, something to, to look back on and think because I have a two year old now and I'm thinking, and this guy is spoiled. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be the yeah. toughest challenge in my life to figure out how to raise him without spoiling him because I'm also, you know, and I, I ha- that, that's being a dad, right? Uh, but yeah, I, I, I immigrated here after being sponsored by some family uh, and moved to Los Angeles. And 
you know, we initially were in Thailand in refugee camp. My brother was two years older and he was actually traveling uh, in the camp uh, immigration system where essentially you go through a jungle, you can imagine a deep forested jungle and you're escaping all the soldiers that are hunting you down. And the kids, you have to essentially drug the kids to make sure that they don't cry at all. There's no noise, anything, because people are just saying, essentially being massacred on site. Um, so we made it cross. I was in the room at the time, so didn't play an active role. Uh, but when we got to uh, Thailand, we then, uh, my, my mom told me a story of how she, there was one time where you know, she wasn't actually a legal refugee. I'm not sure what the definitions were back then, but she hid in the walls of the camp every time the soldiers would check. So it was, I, I believe I was also hiding with her because, uh, so that was a really interesting story. You can imagine this uh, straw huts, you know, being hide, hiding in the walls of straw huts. Uh, but after that Thailand refugee camp, we actually went to the Philippines where we were prepping to learn English and then go to America. So for Cambodian refugees, uh, the two most common places to go to are actually Los Angeles and Paris. So I have some family in Paris and I've lived there for a, a bit as well. Um, but after we moved to LA, you know, we were uh, you know, fairly poor, obviously. My parents have not done any kind of schooling that was taken away from them. So they didn't even go to high school, grade school, anything like that. Uh, you can imagine my, my mom who had walked miles with water pails on a stick. And so she still to this day complains about her back issues. Um, but since then, you know, obviously when we went to America, it became more stable. Yeah, we were living in our uh, cousin's garage. And I remember staying with my brother uh, and living in the same bed with him. And fun fact, I, I lived in the same bed with my brother up until I went to college. That was the first time I had my own bed, not just wow. bedroom, but yeah. bed. Uh, and so, so yeah, we grew up uh, pretty poor. My, my parents were hustling. It's like any immigrants would do. They would uh, take odds and, and jobs. And they found their calling through uh, jewelry design. And it's a very interesting concept here. Essentially, you buy old jewelry from stores that basically people are selling them, pawning back to it. And the, my, my dad would essentially take that jewelry, uh, cast it in a mode, melt it down, and cast it in a mode in his balcony of 600 uh, square feet apartment building with two kids. And then cut it into this tree that has like uh, little bits of jewelry that, that you just cut and then put in a little gold chain. And I, I remember this distinctly because I was five years old and uh, I'm not sure it was child labor, but I was definitely paid to create links of jewelry. I think they told me that it's because I have little hands. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's very useful. <laughs> it's the price. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it, it definitely taught me the value of hard work. Uh, you know, we were always working, never got really allowances or anything, get one toy a year. Um, we were living on welfare up until uh, my teenagers, uh, teenage days. And it was something that I think it was very humbling, but something that also helped me build my hunger to strive and build more. And I was gifted early on in terms of 
test taking. I, I wouldn't say I'm the smartest person in the world, but um, I was very good at test taking. So I was able to test into lots of different things, including out of into college at the age of 12. Um, and I went to Wharton as well afterwards. And when did my primary you, motivation. Was, was there that? a gap there when you, you tested into college at 12? Did you just kind of fly through all the high school requirements and, and immediately go to college or did you finish out on a normal time scale or what? what, what I, I didn't finish out on a normal time scale because I took the college class and I was like, nope, not for me. I'm the small Asian guy. I don't know if I'm going to fit in. I was still kind of social. So I wanted to hang out with my friends and uh, I did football and wrestling. Um, but I'm also like five, seven, 110 pounds back then. <laughs> not, not the smartest idea on my part. <laughs> uh, it was fun. But uh, you had the, the high school experience and, and did all that. Uh... Yeah, the whole high school experience. But although I did, I did take a lot of college courses. So by the time I went to college, uh, I was pretty much two years into the basics. Right, right. I'll see. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, was, it was one of those things where I was highly motivated to just help my family get out of poverty. And I, I always, you probably talked about this, some of you, some of you guests, and I talked about this a lot. You always have to have a why yes. that helps drive you very strongly. And my why was trying to get, make as much money as possible. And, you know, not having any role models on how to do that. Not, you know, also my, my dad was hustling and starting his own thing and buying real estate. That's what I saw. But, you know, if, if I was living in a, a, my, my house right now, I would probably think, okay, I should be an investment manager or, you know, going to tech or something like that. Like, I didn't have any of those blueprints with me. So for me, I actually gravitated towards stock trading. And I was a day trader in high school, made quite a bit of money, paid for my college tuition, and then went to college and uh, was... Uh, Texans Hodum, uh, two times champion at Wharton, and paid for some of my college tuition as well there. So I went out of college without having owed anything, and also paying working for full time jobs uh, or part time jobs. Uh, so that was a really interesting experience back then, where I gravitated towards leveraging my my ability to understand num numbers and stats, um, and I still use that to this day. I just left my full-time job at Apple where I led data science for Siri, where we calculate trillions of data points to understand what people are trying to say mm -hmm. and respond to people's requests more efficiently and effectively. Mm -hmm. And the underlying mechanics of it is lots of data. And I'm saying lots of data. The underlying mechanics of investing in good real estate is also data-driven. You should understand the market you're buying into. And a lot of what a property can tell you should be plainly based on the pro forma and the pro forma should be deeply understood by publicly available data, like anything on citydata.com where you can understand the medium household incomes in a micro target, target uh, neighborhood. And those are the kind of things I use all the time nowadays, but in the past, it was a lot of learning, trying to figure out, is this a B class, C class apartment building, buy that. Um, and I bought my first apartment building two years out of college uh, that I was a very big saver. So I've saved everything. And even when I went to the Peace Corps, which I did after the financial crisis uh, and getting paid $200 a month, I left the Peace Corps with $700 in savings. <laughs> awesome. 
<laughs> Where were you deployed to in the Peace Corps? Republic of Georgia. Okay. It was right after the Russian invasion. And it was an interesting time. We were essentially, you know, there's live shells. Um, there's huge amounts of refugees. Something that I really related to, or I was trying to relate to, and it's actually one of the hardest explanations to my parents. Say, hey, parents, I'm leaving this cushy full-time job in investment banking and got this working degree and I'm going to Peace Corps to volunteer for $20 a month um, to this third world country that it's, it reminds you of Cambodia back then. Uh, so it was a tough explanation. Right. Because obviously as a parent, you're trying to like really provide for your kids and have them have a better life than you. Right. And as a child, you're trying to relate to your parents' experience as much as possible because it's tough to relate to their experience. Um, and so I, I related more through real estate investing with my parents than anything else. I, I've done real Peace Corps. I've, become an, I've been an executive at Fortune 5 companies and I've led technology teams and platforms um, and I've built a immense lot of value in corporate America. They don't get any of that. They just think I work at Apple or, you know, they else ask me, hey, can you fix my iPhone or can you give me a discount on the iPhone? That's, that's literally all they ask for. You're, you're running the Siri team and they want you to fix a cracked screen or something, right? Yeah. I said, <laughs> did you restart your phone? That's usually what I tell them. Just restart it, fix 70% of the problems. Yeah. Uh, good advice. Good advice. So you found a common bond over real estate. When did your father start getting into investing and how old were you when that was starting to happen for him? Uh, he got into real estate investing uh, in the mid 2000s. Um, I think it was 2004 mm-hmm. and I was uh, a few years before college. So I think 16 to 15. Mm-hmm. So I saw, I saw him basically buy a apartment building. I think he was doing some of the numbers, but he was also very handy. So he did a lot of value add, yep. um, which, which is how I approached my next five apartment buildings I bought. Essentially, I leveraged my dad, but also my own you know, intuition of, of the purchase price and the rehab costs and giving him a budget and then helping him work on the uh, rehab and typically it's a very light $10,000, $15,000 a unit type of rehab. It's relatively light because it generated two to $300 in incremental rent bump. Sure. And this is before I heard about syndications or value add. This is just me knowing that, hey, this is a distressed property. I see other properties renting for a higher amount. And I think I could re- replicate what they have with just a little bit of investment. Sure. And so and what properties were these uh, to begin with? And this is in Los Angeles? Yeah, this, this is Los Angeles County. And yep. they're, the first one was a triplex. Yep. The second one was a quadplex. And then I alternated between triplex and quadplex. Yep. And what, just for my curiosity, I, Los, Los Angeles is such a different market than San Antonio, Texas, where we are. What was stuff trading for when you were first getting into it? You know, kind of price per door ballpark. The first few I bought were in really C-class areas, which is something I, I continue to buy in. Um, so they were trading for, and, and I got a preface that I bought my first in 2008. So it was a really good time. Sure. It was, it was like $350,000, 
three years ago. And then I bought it for 126. Oh, wow. It was three units. So that, and, and the rents were average $700. Right. So it would generate a good amount of revenue, um, the double digit cash and cash day sure. one. Sure. And, and I've, everything I bought since then has always been on the, um, that lens. I wanted to buy something with a day one cash and cash yep. that's double digits. And, and as soon as I, that wasn't possible, I stopped buying California. <laughs> yep. That makes it. So you stick, stick to your guns on your underwriting criteria. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you shifted to other markets? I mean, that's uh, that's a big shift for, for any investor to go through. Was that something that happened very intentionally or what, what did that process look like? It was definitely a very intentional decision. Mm-hmm. I shifted to other markets, but I also shifted to other asset classes. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that I had more capital, I was looking for something a bigger, something bigger to tackle. Um, but I also was also looking for partners, local operating partners that I could build those long-term relationships and trust. Because the thing I learned through all my single family, I call it single family, even though it's like quadplex, triplex investing is, um, you have to have a part, you have to have a team. You have to have people who are better than you in many respects. And you should know each parts of the business, but you can't rely on yourself for everything. Um, and that's what I found in uh, my partners in Kansas City. Uh, and, you know, it was slow over time to get going. But now that I have it, it's become a very good virtual cycle where now I'm closing deals. We just closed on Friday, a 426 unit apartment building. Outstanding. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and deals are coming to us now. And so, mm-hmm. and financing is becoming easier. Uh, we're no longer just the California guys buying real estate in Kansas City. I'm also touring the city with local civic leaders. So civic leaders themselves, including mayors and city council members, are pitching ideas to us because they see us as coastal capital that can help revitalize parts of the community. And I see it as an inside look at where development is happening in Kansas City, which is hugely important to understand uh, path to progress and uh, upside for future growth. Now, I always, always invest for mostly cash flow. So there are some bets I do take for appreciation and speculation. Typically, they're in stocks, but I will try a few in real estate because um, it's really great to create those long-term relationships with uh, both the people who, are, who owns pretty much half the city, but also um, the people who have a say in where the next cable car goes. Right, right. Outstanding. Um, love it. Four, 426, you said? Yep, 426 units. Yeah, that's a good size. Uh, that's a good size property. How? What are you guys doing for property management? Is there is there a third party company that you use for all your Kansas City properties, or how do you approach that? Uh, we have two property management companies: one for um, B class assets and a mixed use, which is something I heavily uh, own as well in Kansas City. Um, the other one is vertically integrated. So we actually, uh, my partners own that. Uh, property management company. So they're basically managing the property for ourselves and they own five, they, they manage 5,000 units across Kansas city and Texas and Oklahoma. 
so that's that's how we take a lot of our operation efficiencies up to scale yeah yeah no doubt um are the, that's a pretty large deal right for 400 plus are these syndicated deals are you bringing in private equity how do you structure your capital stack so all of our deals have been past syndicated deals five or six b offerings so far mm-hmm. um we're experimenting with some new different types of offerings going forward as well um but uh, typically they sh- they will be uh, syndicated because I'm trying to also create a platform that makes investing accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I target tech investors because that's sure. my background. Yeah. You know, a lot of people at Apple and Google and Facebook don't know the tax benefits of real estate. Right. If they live in the San Francisco Bay Area, they, they think real estate is expensive, <laughs> that yeah, it appreciates right. highly sometimes, but also depreciates when there's an economic disaster like, you know, what we're going through in the Bay Area. Um, Even though rent prices, rents are going down five to 10% in the Bay Area, Kansas City is second in the nation in rent growth. So I always tell them, you know, every market is very different. But typically uh, I want to make that uh, real estate investing as accessible to people and provide a diversified portfolio of, of cash flow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would you say to someone Aang, that, that wants to get into this business? I'm sure you talk to a lot of people from your from your corporate life, tech tech folks, etc. That maybe have heard it, they're interested, uh, they they kind of don't know where to start. What what, what do you say to that person? Uh, I'd say to them, try to partner with somebody more experienced or somebody as excited about it as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be very hard to do it solo. Uh, I love talking to folks and partnering with people as well. So I have, I really ascribe to the abundance mindset that m- more can be done with more people. And I'm generous with my time and uh, equity so that uh, we can expand faster. Um, in some cases, I just like mentoring people. And so I bring on folks on that are really passionate about it because you can't teach for passion uh, and conviction. And so I love to surround myself with other folks that have the same passions for real estate investing and what it gives you, which is financial freedom. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's hugely important. What would you say, um, you've had quite the journey to, to where you are now in a relatively short period of time. If there was maybe one or two attributes or, or keys to what's allowed you to do that? What, what do you think those are? There's two attributes, I think. And, I, and when I, everyone asked me how I've become so successful, even before I left to do real estate, um, I was still one of the youngest execs and uh, making quite a bit of, you know, a good amount of money. Um, two is w- one, flexibility. Mm. Always be flexible and adaptable. I learned that a lot through going to Peace Corps, living in different places, trying different industries, and learning and adapting to each unique situation. Have your moral compass, have your North Star, but be flexible to the situation. Don't go in saying, I'm going to only buy B-class assets with 100 units and above. Go in saying that I want to make a lot of money, hopefully, and get great cash flow. And I want to focus on these things. And if things change, then you should adapt to it. And the second part of that, is, it's, it goes the same vein, is always be learning. 
I learn from everyone I talk to. I'm going to learn from you and I'm going to learn from everyone who wants to be mentees or partners. Um, and I love that concept to always be learning. You know, I've had at least seven different careers. Even at Apple, I was leading data science. Before that, I was leading product management for Apple Music. And before that, I was helping the uh, iPhone team grow their portfolio. Uh, each very different business lines, each very different roles. But I, was, I always adapt and learn very quickly. Uh, now I'm in this syndication space, this private equity space, and I'm learning and adapting to the situation as well. And I'm always experimenting. So I would advise people to be flexible, experiment, and always be learning. I love it. Thank you for the, for the overview on that. All, all that's hugely important. So we're talking right now, uh, Q4 2020. It's been an interesting year. Um, what are your thoughts? This is a little bit of an unfair question asking you to read your you know, crystal ball here, but what do you see for the space you're in for 2021? I think 2021 is going to open up a lot more transactions. 2020 has been very stilted. Mm -hmm. uh, I was hoping to get more COVID discounts. I'm a buyer in this market and capital is relatively abundant and cheap, both on financing as well as uh, investor capital. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm always wary and careful of markets that have constraints. And the big constraint right now is people aren't selling good assets. If you're, you're holding a good asset, you're generally not selling. So the only assets that I'm buying are either distress, which is distressed for a reason, sure. or uh, are assets that um, are at the end of their own life cycle for 1031 uh, or related reasons. So in 2021, I really think that um, after the elections specifically, there's going to be a loosening of of transactions and there will be probably three to four times more transactions next year, which means more buyers and more sellers. I believe um, with the next few months, there'll be an economic uh, hit to rents, um, which is why I like to buy for high DSCR um, buildings, which can withstand much lower vacancy factors. Mm -hmm. And I always underwrite for it at least a 20% sensitivity analysis of what happens if it goes down by 20%. If I can't pay the debt after that, I don't buy it. So that's typically what I'm looking for. Um, and I believe in the next six months, we'll see that plateau a little bit in terms of the uh, economic uh, distress that's gonna cause in the rental markets. And of course it can be different in every market. I, I'm not an expert in San Antonio market. I can't say you know, what's the Phoenix market look like. These are very hot markets, but I know San Francisco, LA, Miami, New York, they've all been hit very hard in rentals. I would never invest in the first place, but they're very different. Right, right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. There's so much pent up uh, everything, right? I mean, there's capital on the sidelines. Everybody wants to transact, right? Brokers, owners, sellers, buyers. Uh, so I, I, I tend to agree. It'd be interesting to see. Hopefully, you know, some things can get back to some kind of normalcy and we can all yeah. go out and do deals. So, um, We'll see. We'll see what the future holds. What uh, this is fantastic, Aang, and I, I really appreciate you taking some time to to share your story. It's incredibly inspiring. If somebody listening wanted to reach out and connect with you, is there a good avenue for them to do that? Yeah, I would encourage them to go to my website, tozicapital.com, t-o-u-z-i capital.com, and just sign up, get started, 
send me a message and my team will reach out to you and we'd love to connect on either if you want to understand what deals we have on the pipeline, we have many, or if you just want to talk about taxes and real estate, which is some of my favorite topics. Yeah. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. You can click right through from your podcast player um, and reach out. I recommend it. So, and thank you so much for, for joining. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Devin. All right. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.